All right, good morning. My name is uh, Pastor Joshua, and it's good to see everybody here this morning. We are doing a series on the uh, book of Jonah. And so uh, if you have your Bibles or your phones or your iPads, whatever, slide there, turn there, whatever you want to do. And uh, we are in Jonah. We're going to be kind of wrapping up uh, chapter 1, and then we'll be focused on chapter 2. Let me just pray that God will, uh, will bless our time. Lord, each, uh, each service is different, and um, I just come to you, and I ask that you would uniquely work in this particular service with our particular circumstances and our various areas of where we're at with you and where we're at in life, and I pray that you would work in our life. And um, some of us are coming in here broken and, and feeling like we, we just need to be put back together, and I pray you would do that. And others of us, we're coming in here and we're feeling renewed and refreshed, and I pray that you would just sustain us in that and protect us in that. And, and Lord, as a church, we just ask for ongoing revival. We ask for ongoing renewal. We ask for ongoing understanding of grace and give us that unique mix that only Jesus can give us, that mix of confidence because you're at work, but humility because it's by grace we are what we are. And so work in this moment in Jesus' name. Amen. When we left Jonah, we left him as he was going down, down, down. He was going down in verse chapter 1 and verse 3 when he went down to Joppa as opposed to out to Nineveh. He went down in chapter 1 verse 5 when he went down into the bottom of the boat as he fell asleep during the storm. And then finally, the pagans finally made sure that they got rid of this rebellious prophet by throwing him down into the sea. His journey downward is a familiar journey to all of us, and we all know what this is like when we're going down. Everybody say down. Down. We go down, and we, we begin to feel the gravity of our rebellion. We begin to feel this kind of almost unstoppable force of, of going down. And we learned last week that this is not something just for the irreligious. This is something for the religious, this going down. And, and we, we begin to get this trajectory in our life, and we begin to break down, and we begin to feel it, and we begin to act it out, and we begin to feel the impact. And it's in my own life, I can tell you, that uh, uh, when I begin to feel the trajectory of my spiritual life going down, um, I can literally sometimes physically feel it. Like where my show, how many of y'all have ever felt that where it feels like your shoulders are in your heart? Have y'all ever been there? Those late nights when you can't sleep, when you feel like you're just going down, down, down. And, and, and as Jonah is breaking down, literally just absolutely losing his mind, breaking down, uh, God is going to interfere, and God is going to take his breakdown and his down, down, down to going up, up, up. God is going to interrupt his downward trajectory with a breakthrough, his breakdown with a breakthrough. And we see it in chapter 1 and verse 17 when God graciously steps in. Look at verse 17. It says, and the Lord appointed, that is sovereignly designated, that is God talked to a great fish like Gandalf talks to birds. He talked to a fish, he appointed the fish 
to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, people, automatically, people, in our, especially in our culture, they stop and they go, this is scientifically impossible. Do you know the acids that would be in a well and a human being being in a well? This is scientifically impossible, and this is so primitive, and, so, and it's so Old Testament, and it's so thousands. It must be a parable. It must be an allegory. It's not a parable. It's not an allegory. It is sensational. But I will tell you this. The God who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, I think it's a pretty small thing for him to create a fish that can contain a human being and sustain that human being in the fish. Amen? Now, obviously, if we didn't believe in a creator God, if we didn't believe that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, of course, we would come to the same conclusion as skeptics. And we, would, we almost understand their objection. I almost understand it. But if you have a presupposition of a creator God who created the heavens and the earth, then this is no problem. It reminds me of a story that was, that was sent to me on the city this week of a little girl who was in class, and her science teacher said to her and the class, it's impossible that that Jonah would be in the belly of a, of a whale because even though a whale is a rather large mammal, it has a small throat, there's no way. And the little girl said to the teacher, well, Jonah was in the belly of the whale. And the teacher got frustrated. And she said, no, he was not. It is scientifically, class, it's scientifically impossible that Jonah could be in the belly of the whale. And the little girl said, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. And the teacher looked at her and said, well, what if Jonah went to hell? And the little girl looked at her and said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> I don't know if it's a true story. I felt like it was a godly story. All right. I feel like it was appropriate. I like that little girl, even if she's not real. Okay. Verse 17, God appoints this, and this fish is a great grace. Listen to me. This fish is a wonderful grace. It saves Jonah's life. Jonah doesn't regret this fish. Jonah loves this fish. And we learn what Jonah thinks of the fish in chapter 2 as he lifts up, as he gets this. He's in the belly of this fish. And he busts out into a song. He busts out into this, into this amazing psalm. Look at it in chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying... I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Now he begins to replay, flashes back. Verse 3, you can imagine, he gets cast out by the pagans overboard. They throw him overboard into the sea. And he says there in verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. And all your waves and your billows, they passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over to take my life. Notice in the song, he's going down, down, down. Weeds were wrapped about my head, down, at the roots of the mountains. Because, you know, when you get to the bottom of the sea, you're at the bottom, at the foot of mountains. So he's saying, I'm down, I'm hitting the floor of the ocean floor. I went down to the land whose bars closed me up forever. Yet, everybody say yet. Oh, thank God for the yet. Amen. I am so grateful for the yets. Yet, 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 yet. That's not tongues. That's English. Yet. 
Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Literally, when he talks about the bars, I thought that was strange. I did some research. That bars, they believed in the ancient Near East that, that when you got low enough, that bars would close up over you like a gate so that you could never get out. Imagine if you're drowning and you get all the way to the bottom and then bars, a gate shuts over you. And that was the land and the realm of the dead. That was Sheol. That was, that was the place where dead people haunted the depths of the ocean. So you can imagine he goes all the way down, hits the bottom of the ocean floor, and then yet God saved him. And how did God save him? A great fish came and said, and there was Jonah in the belly of that great fish, and he begins to praise God now. Some of us, all of us, whether we're religious or irreligious, we have breakdowns, and we go down, 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 down. And even some of you in the future, you're going to have a moment when you take a step back. Now, praise God for the three steps forward for every step back. But pastors, leaders, elders, members, we all have breakdowns. We all begin to go. We sag. We go through spiritual burnout. We go through radical rebellion. We go down, 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 down. And we begin to stop and say, what is it? How can I, how can I get breakthrough again? How can I... How can I feel God again? How can, I, how can I spiritually be reignited, be renewed, be, be, uh, be, uh, be again engaged in my relationship with God? What is it that's going to cause me from moving from being irreligious to being uh, 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 godly, to fearing God? What is it gonna, that's going to take me, a religious person, to being engaged again in my relationship with God? What's the key to transformation? What's the key to renewal? What's the key? To moving from breakdown to breakthrough. And I'm going to give you the key right now. It's one word. I'm going to tell you one word. We learn it from Jonah. Grace. Everybody say grace. Grace is the key to breakthrough. And at every, no matter where you're at on the spiritual uh, timeline, whether you're at the very beginning of your relationship with God or whether you've been walking with Jesus your whole life, you've been in church, you've heard every sermon. You know every passage of Scripture. Listen, every breakthrough with God, not some, not many, but every breakthrough with God comes by grasping, receiving, and understanding grace. Now, what Jonah says, so he said, how do I grasp it? How do I receive it? How do I embrace grace? There's three things, all right? I'm going to give you three things from Jonah. I'm extracting it from the Jonah text, and I want to show you three things so that you can grasp, receive, embrace grace so that your breakdown will turn into a breakthrough, and your breakthrough will lead to a breakout, all right? Because ultimately, he's going to get vomited by the fish out on land to ministry. So we want to go breakdown, breakthrough, breakout. How do I grasp it? Three things. Number one, you have to learn what grace is. You say, I already know what grace is. I'm in the church. I know what grace is. No, 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 no. Hear me. You have to relearn what grace is. Continually learn what grace is. Number two, you have to love grace. You've got to love it. Your affections, your soul has to be touched by it. And number three, you have to live for grace. That'll lead to breakthrough. And break out. You got to live for grace. So, number one, let's do this. Let's walk through that. Number one, let's learn what is grace. What is grace? 
From this passage, I want you to know that the emphasis is not that Jonah called out to God. He was as good as dead anyways. The emphasis in the text is that God answered this sinful, rebellious person. This man had run from God and he knew better. He knew the Bible. He was a prophet of the Lord. And yet he rebelled against God and God did not owe Jonah anything and yet God answered him. So that gives us a clue as to what grace is. Let me tell you this. You can write it down or if you're falling asleep, listen to it on the internet and write it down at home. Amen? Here's what grace is. I'm going to tell you what it is. It's two things. It is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. The whole Bible says this. Genesis to Revelation. Grace is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. Now, both those things are important. If you just say that grace is just an undeserved gift, you're missing half of it. Because it's an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. Now, when I... You know, I'm a dad now. So when I first started thinking about grace, I thought, oh, grace is kind of like being a parent. You know, because like your kids, when they're born, I mean, they don't... They haven't earned anything. Amen? They're just there. Amen? I mean, they all look like Winston Churchill. You know, they, 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 don't, they, don't, they can't earn money. They can't go get a job. They can't, they can't participate in paying the bills. You know what I mean? And yet, here's Sherry and I, and what do we do? What, what does every parent do with their kids? They give them undeserved, unearned gifts all the time. We give them food. We give them clothing. We give them shelter. We give them love. We hug them. We kiss them. We throw powder on the bottoms. By the way, my diaper technique is phenomenal. I just want you to know, if you need help, come to me, young dads. Come to me. I'll help you out. But anyways, you know, we change their diaper. We wipe their bottle. We do the whole thing, and it's this kind of thing that they didn't deserve. And so I used to think that's what great, that's how God is with us. Like God comes, and even though we haven't earned anything, you know, he cleans us up and kind of gives us clothes and gives us love. But here's the difference, see. It's not only an undeserved gift. It's from an unobligated giver. And guess what? According to the state, state laws, the laws of the land, every parent is obligated. Everybody say obligated. You are obligated to love your child. Amen. You're obligated to change the diapers, to give them food, to make sure they're provided for. You're obligated because you're the parent. And so the grace of God is completely different because God's grace is not only undeserved, it's, he's not obligated to give us anything. He's not He's not bound by that same parental thing. God is not only undeserving, he's unobligated in giving us grace. And so if you come up with an illustration for grace, what you have to do, I'm just trying to help you learn. Everybody say learn. I'm trying to help you learn. What you have to do is almost come up with a ridiculous illustration, like an illustration that's wild, that doesn't even make sense to even come close to a human experience. So here's what the grace of God is as best as I know it. If a man comes and steals everything from me, everything in my house. By the way, I'm a pastor. My TV is way too big. It's ungodly how big my TV. No pastor should have a TV the size I have. Amen? And he stole that big, nice TV of mine. Flat screen. I think sweet. I have one of Isaac's electric guitars that I play. What if he stole all my guitars and Isaac's guitar? My friend, my colleague. What if he stole all the valuable things, baseball cards, amplifiers, books, some of my favorite books, you know, the works of John Owen. 
He stole everything, and he left. And then I found him a month later. Now, this is where it gets ridiculous, but this is what you got to do. you got to get ridiculous. I found him on a street corner, naked, starving. And if he doesn't eat food in the next 30 minutes, this man is going to die. He's so filthy and in such bad shape and so weak and so starved and malnourished that even, even his, 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 his own refuse is there. He's, he's gone to the bathroom on this corner. He's filthy, dirty. He stinks to high heaven. Literally, if you were around this man, you'd throw up a little bit in your mouth. Now, at that moment, am I obligated to help this man out? not obligated at all does he deserve has he earned the right for me to come and help him out no of course not but let's say I take him I clean him up I give him a bath myself I take him to my house I put him in my bathtub I give him a house uh, a bath myself I clean him up I give him my clothes I give him food so that he'll he'll eat and not only that I go to my wife and I say sherry baby because that's how I talk in my house all right sherry baby sherry baby we're sleeping in the living room. I'm going to give this man my bedroom. He's sleeping in our bed tonight. That's grace. That's the grace of God. It's both undeserved and it comes from an unobligated. And everybody who's experienced God, you were going down, down, down. Spiritually, you were starved, malnourished, naked, broke. Even in the King James Version, it describes death as it stinketh. You stinketh. Amen. And God came to you undeservingly, not obligated in any way, and he saved you. Same thing for Jonah. What Jonah teaches us about grace, this is how we learn grace. It is both undeserved from an unobligated person, and when we begin to understand that, then grace takes this profound level of understanding. Now, the second thing we got to do is not only learn it, we have to love it. Because, listen, anybody can intellectually understand grace, but that does not bring breakthrough. What brings breakthrough is not only when you know it with your head, but it comes down into your heart. You have to love grace. Grace has to be something that impacts your affections. It has to, you have to be able to be moved by, no matter how long you've been in the church, loved ones, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You have to, you have to know how to be impacted by this gift of grace that God gives to us and, 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 and uses in our lives. So how do I love grace? How does Jonah fall in love with grace? He not only knows it, but now he falls in love with it. And we get a key to it. In verse 7, everybody look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 7. I want to teach you how we can love grace, which in and of itself takes a miracle, but we can at least describe loving grace and what the key is to loving grace. Verse 7, he says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came up to you into your holy temple. The key is the temple. Now jump back up, just uh, take your eyes right back up to verse 4 in the psalm. He brings up the temple there too, and I want to read it. He says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The key to loving grace is found in the meaning of him looking to the temple and him saying, in verse 7, he says, My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, 
That verse 7 just drove me absolutely insane. Everybody say insane. I mean, I earned my paycheck on trying to get down to this deal here, all right? Because my deal is, like, why does he say, um, why does he say, my prayer came to you in the temple? Uh, we know, he knew, theologically, God can hear our prayers anywhere, true or false. I mean, you can be driving in your car, you can be out in a field, you can be anywhere. Your prayer doesn't have to go to any temple to be heard by God. Furthermore, why is Jonah even bringing up the temple repetitively? He literally says he's drowning. Weeds are choking him. He's going down into the ocean. He's going, why is he even thinking about the temple? And the reason why is because he knows mysteriously, maybe not even totally clearly, but he understands mysteriously that grace comes at a cost. That grace is not free. That in order for God to forgive sinners, something has to happen. God has to pay a price because what is the temple? The temple is this beautiful building on the outside. But on the inside of this beautiful temple, what happens inside that temple in the Holy of Holies? Blood is spilled. Sacrifices are made. There's the ark and, and the mercy seat on the ark. You all have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You got the ark. You got the mercy seat, and they would put blood on the mercy seat. Later on, when Nehemiah Ezra rebuilt the temple, they didn't have the ark, and what they would do is take buckets of blood into the Holy of Holies, and without the ark, they would just spill. I did that in the first service, too. Do you like that? Huh? 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 But they would literally, they'd take that, that bucket of blood, and they would just all over the temples, just like that, too, by the way. I went to seminary. I studied it. And there would be blood all over the middle of this place, this beautiful building. But on the inside, this grotesque thing of innocent sacrifices happening. Now, Jonah, he didn't understand it perfectly. It's not like he's thinking about Jesus. But he understood that the way that God gives grace to sinners, under, he, he gives an undeserved gift as an unobligated person. The only way he could do it is if he, God, pays a price for the sin through sacrifices. And he understands, and the way his heart is lifted up in affection is he sees the cost. Ah, oh, the cost. Grace is not free. What do we think of when we think of grace? You know what, you know what I used to think of? I'm still tempted to think like this sometimes because I'm, I'm a grace preacher. I preach about grace all the time. I'm tempted to think that the grace of God is just God going, ah, that's good. You're good. Isaac, you're good, man. Okay. All right, man. I'll see you later. I'm going to throw your sins in the sea of forgetfulness. It's no big deal for me. I'm out. Like, that's how, that's how America thinks of the grace of God. That's how bad theology is created in America is we think God's just able to go, ah, whatever, yeah. I love you unconditionally. It's all good. Agape love. You're good. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that not only is God giving us an undeserved gift as an unobligated giver, but in order for him to do this and still be just and justifier, holy and righteous, and yet have us in his presence, he has to pay a profound price of passion and Blood. That's why we celebrate Jesus. That's why we say the name of Jesus. That's why, we, that's why we say believe in Jesus. Because what Jesus was saying in his ministry, 
he was saying in his ministry, God wants to save you. (laughs) God, God wants to take your breakdown and reverse it into a breakthrough. God, God, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus was saying, and then he said, he said to the Pharisees, he said to the Pharisees, he said, I am the temple, and you break this temple. You kill this temple, and on the third day it will rise again, and there'll be a new place. That's why they stoned Stephen in Acts chapter 8. You want to know why they stoned Stephen in Acts chapter 8? 7, 8, 7 and 8. I'm from Oklahoma. The numbers come slow to the brain. Especially in moments of inspiration. Because Stephen said to the Pharisees, he's like, you see that that temple? You don't need it anymore. That's what he said in Acts chapter 7. He said, the temple has come. And you all, he looks at at these religious people, and he said, you all killed the temple of God. You all put the temple of God up on a cross. And you all buried him, and then he rose again, and you might as well just repent and believe. Because if you don't repent and believe in Jesus as a temple, then you're going to go to hell. And they were like, get some rock, get a rope. That's what Jesus was saying. The name of Jesus and believing in the name of Jesus is not only saying, God loves me. He loved me at the cost of his own life. And this beautiful, glorious Son of God, infinitely, in eternity past the Son of God, outwardly beautiful and perfect and worthy of all the angels of uh, of worship. On the inside, something grotesque happened to Him on the cross. On the inside of this temple, he, He absorbed our sin. He absorbed the rebellion. He absorbed and deconstructed it. And it killed Him and He killed it on the cross. And then He was buried. And then on the third day, He rose again and He said, if you believe in Me, then you will receive the unearned an undeserved favor of God, but it came at the cost. Loved ones, listen, grace is not cheap. No, it's not. It's not cheap. And you were saved by works, but not your own. You were saved by the fulfillment of the law, but not by you. You were saved because of the penalty being paid, but you didn't pay it. That's why Jonah, as he's drowning, looks to the temple because he says, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But not only is God saving me, and God will save me, but he's going to save me because some, something is going to pay the price for me. God is going to pay my price. And he's moved by it. He's moved to a song of thanksgiving. You got to love it. You got to love it. You know, there's two kinds of people that come to church, all right? There, there, there's some people, they come to church and they're confident, you know? They're, they're, they're really, 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 really confident. And they kind of come in and they kind of say, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, I got my life together. You know, I got, uh, I know how to do this gig. Um, and, uh, and, and, man, I mean, to be, in their, to be in their presence is really something of awesomeness, Okay. And then there's other kinds of people who come to church and they're so broken and so humbled by life and so, 
So almost feeling unworthy, almost feeling like at any moment the big bell of, you know, is going to start ringing inside the church and say, sinner, you know, and they feel humbled. That did not work. That worked a lot better in the first service, didn't it, Isaac? There's these two groups of people. And for the overconfident person, they have to hear about grace to humble them and to realize that what they have is because of the undeserved grace from an unobligated giver who paid the price, and it humbles the overconfident person. But for the overly humbled person, the person broken, the person hurting, the person that's been defiled and been in rebellion, and it's destroyed their life, and they know it, and they're beat up, and they don't feel worthy, they have to hear the message of grace because it gives them the confidence that they need to be able to stand up and to say, you know what? God can turn this around because he pays the price. And when the overconfident person loves grace, they'll become humble. When the humble person uh, 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 loves grace, then they'll become more confident, and then the breakthrough begins to happen. You've got to love grace. Learn grace, love grace, finally. Live for grace. How do we live for grace? And what happens to Jonah, <laughs> and especially... And these things all go together, by the way. You learn it intellectually, then it comes down in your heart, and it impacts you. And then the natural kind of result in Jonah's life is he wants to live for grace. Like, he thinks this is the biggest deal in the world. Like, that's it. Duh! This is it. And so he begins to want to live for grace. Look at verse 8. This is the key. Verses 8. I'll just go ahead and finish out the text. He says in verse 8, he says, Those who pay regard... To vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That sentence theologically is what the whole Bible is about. If you wanted to sum up the whole Bible, salvation belongs to the Lord, that's the sentence. Old Testament, New Testament, whole ministry of Jesus, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's exclusively His. John Calvin said, it is the prerogative of God to save whom He wants. It is His prerogative to save, verse 10. And he said that in his commentary on this passage, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it, I love this. There's Gandalf talking to the bird again. And God just, oh, nobody watches Lord of the Rings at Crosspoint. Okay. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I mean, the fish is grateful to get rid of the guy. Out upon the dry land, you see the final breakout into ministry. He's now going to get to go do his ministry. Now, how do you live for grace? The key is verse 8 when he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And that verse, verse 8, I, I got to tell you, that verse drove me crazy because it doesn't make sense there to me when you first read it. Because you got verse 7, and he's like, My life was fainting away, and I remember the Lord, and my prayer came up to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Verse 9. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice. It's almost like, why is verse 8 there? Because I'm always hearing, I hear that verse in my head, and what I hear is bitterness, like those people who have vain idols, literally in the Hebrew, empty nothings. They forsake their hope of the steadfast love of God. Trick them. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will offer my life as a sacrifice. Blah, blah. 
That didn't make sense. So I really, I mean, what I had to do is just bring out all the arsenal of everything I've learned. All this sermon, seminary education, $30,000. And I had to bring my scholarly magnifying glass and bring it over the Bible. And I had to look like Sherlock Holmes into verse 8 deeply. And I found a clue. That worked a lot better in the first service, too, didn't it? I, I am really struggling. This is a tough crowd, tough crowd today. He says in verse 8, the key is the, is the phrase steadfast love. And in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, there's a word there, one word that stands for steadfast love. In your NIV, it's grace. But the Hebrew word, and I like saying this word because I get to spit, and Oklahomans love to spit. Yeah. It goes, ha. Chasev. Y'all want to try it? Chasev. One, two, three. Chasev. Spit on your neighbor. Chasev. Okay. This word meant loyalty or kindness. It meant, it was translated all kind of loving. Anytime you see loving kindness or the loyalty of God or the kindness of God or the steadfast love or the grace of God, it's the same Hebrew word. And the thing about this word is that it's covenant love. It was the word that stood for the fact that God came into special relationship with the Israelites. It was used exclusively with the Israelites. Like God came into unconditional covenant with the Israelites with this love. And he gave them their love. And the Israelites thought, and Jonah thought before all this happened to him, Jonah thought, just like all the other Israelites, this chasev is exclusively ours and nobody else's. This covenant love belongs to us, to Israel. And what he's saying in verse 8 is he's like, Dude! Jonah said, dude. He said, dude, wait a minute. If I can get this unconditional love and this grace, then other people can get it too. And it's not just about the Israelites. It's about pagans who worship these idols. And the key is, is they have to forsake their vain idols and then they have hope for Stephas. Oh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. If I don't go, If I, don't, if I don't live for grace, if I don't tell people of the grace of God, if I don't, wait a minute, if I don't tell them, then they won't let go of their idols, their false gods, their false saviors, their functional saviors. And if they don't let go of their, well, then they're going to forsake their opportunity to have the love. They, they can't forsake this love. We've got, I've got to go tell them. And so now you see the flow. Go back to, the, go back, go back to Jonah. He says in verse 9, he says, I will go with the voice of thanksgiving I will sacrifice to you. I'll be a sacrifice in this ministry to tell others about this love. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to you, Lord. If you can save me, you can save a pagan. You can save the Ninevites. You can save, you can save the Assyrians. You can save Iraqis. You can save Spanish people. I will go because if, I don't, if we don't tell them, then they won't get the same love. He's learned what grace is. He loves it. And now he wants to live for it. He wants others to hear about it. He knows that the hope of the world, the hope of the world is not law. 
The hope of the world is not religious activities. The hope of the world is not some religious treadmill. The hope of the world is, is not some inward, innate, human resource, power, self-help, fix-it, check-up from the neck up. The hope of the world isn't any of that stuff. The hope of the world is the grace of God. And the world has to hear about the grace of God. And the world has to hear the cost that God paid to give grace to sinners. Live for grace. The Apostle Paul said something incredibly similar, and I want to read it to you. He said something very similar. He said, he said in Romans chapter 1, verse 14, he said, I am under obligation. Everybody say obligation. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. What he's saying is, I'm in debt. Get this. That's what the obligation, that is, that's accounting language. And he says, I'm in debt to pagans. I'm in debt to unbelievers. I'm in debt to people. Now listen, we're not in debt to God. We're not in debt to God. You cannot come to church and think you're somehow in debt to God and you're going to pay him back and you're going to give him all this stuff because Jesus paid the price. He paid the whole price. He is your righteousness. So you're not in debt to God, but guess who you are in debt to? You and I, as a church, we are in debt to every unbeliever in this world because we don't deserve the grace of God just like they don't. And if we get it, then we have to tell them about it because we're in debt to them. That's grace. And that's what Paul's saying. I was the chief of sinners, and yet the mercy of God came to me, and I'm in debt to the world to make sure that whatever God wants me to do to make sure that others hear about the grace, I will do that. I will live for the message of grace. Now, I'm really tired. I'm breathing hard. Oh, my gosh. But I want to talk to you practically on two levels. First of all, corporately and then personally. First of all, corporately. Cross Point Church. We are and you have been and I want us to continue to be and to grow in being a church of grace. I want people to come here as they are. And I want them to be accepted and loved as they are. And I want them to hear a message of grace. And to hear that human failure is never final as long as God's grace is operational. I want the culture of our church to not just be for believers but to be for unbelievers. Some churches, they choose to be all about unbelievers and not about believers. And they jack it up and they have Mountain Dew and light shows and, you know, smoke comes out of their seats and all kinds of cool stuff. But... They're jacked up, all right? But then you got other churches, they're all about believers. And, and so they say, well, we're going to be about believers. And the other churches say, well, we're going to be about unbelievers. And what we want our churches to be about both. 
believers and unbelievers. And I want to teach you the Bible verse by verse, but I want to communicate it in a way to where if somebody has never known the Bible, they'll be able to follow me. They'll be able to embrace the truth while you're being fed on the truth. And I want our ministries to have a mentality of the reason why I sign up to be a greeter. It's not so that Bob, who's been coming here for 20 years, can feel welcome. But I'm a greeter so that Sherry, who's never been here before and who's going through incredible stuff in her life, will feel like that she is loved by a church that wants her to be here. I want our life groups to say, listen, we're not only supporting each other as believers, but we are, we are missionary groups to reach people. I want our children's ministry to say, I want to serve in the children's ministry, not just so, you know, Josh's 15 girls can get Bible education, uh, all right, but so, that, but so that Bob and Mary who come, and they've got two kids, and they haven't been to church in 20 years since they were kids or whatever, and they just want to raise their kids, they know because of your service in the children's ministry that their kids are safe, they're going to learn great things, and they can come worship with us. I want our mentality to be like Jonah. If they don't forsake their vain idols, then they forsake the hope that they have in the love of God. Man, when you get to that place, not only has your breakdown led to breakthrough, but your breakthrough has led to break out, and God will, boom, he'll put you on land. He'll inspire you. He will, he will influence you. He'll give you new visions of how to reach people. Personally, in our life, the way we live for grace is personally we forgive each other. We walk in grace. We go the extra mile. We let minor things slide off the back. Uh, we, we, we go the extra mile. We turn the cheek. We give, we give our enemies our prayer. We give our enemies everything we possibly can before we fight back. We are Christians. We are counterintuitive, countercultural. We are people. We are peacemakers. We are lovers. And people should see in our families, in our marriages, with our kids, with people in our church, that we know how to forgive one another and stay united and be together and encourage each other and be fired up. We got to be people of grace. That's it. That's what Jonah's teaching us. And then God will spit us out on dry land and give us some ministry. So learn grace. Love grace. Live for grace. And let your breakthrough and breakout begin to happen in your life. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, I, um, I do thank you for your grace, and, and I thank you for our church. We, we want to be a, a shining city on a hill. We want to be a light in the world, but we also know in our own life that we need your grace and your spirit to impact our hearts with these truths. God, I thank you that every breakthrough with you is not because of our own works, but because of your grace. And so all we can do is offer up empty hands with nothing to offer. And all we can do is call out to you. And I pray that as we call out to you, you will answer us and give us what we need. If you're not a believer today, I would just ask you, are you going down? Are you going down? And is it time for you to call out and the way to call out to God as you're going down is to call on the name of Jesus. 
and to say, Jesus, there's no way I, I'm getting out of this ocean, this depth. There's no way I'm getting out of these waves, out of these weeds, out of the bottom of the sea unless you pull me up. I call on you to do it. Do it in my life. Maybe you came in here and you're overconfident and everything's working in your life, but there's that quiet, subtle emptiness. And I call on you to call out on the name of Jesus and to humble yourself. And maybe you're coming in here and everything is wrong. Your, your emptiness is a loud roar. Your whole life is a loud roar of brokenness. Call out on the name of Jesus and let him give you confidence. Let him bring you up. Let him put you on firm ground again. Abandon your functional saviors. Abandon the things that you've depended on to save you. Abandon your vain idols and, and come to Christ, the name of Christ. He is the temple. He's the one that paid the price. It's through him that we have grace. And God, bring a revival in this church. Bring ongoing renewal. Bring an impact. And all of us, we go through spiritual burnout or, or we, we all go through moments when we feel like our, our shoulders are in our heart and our heart is in our feet and, our, and, and our, our nights are filled with depression or fear or anxiety and we feel like we're going down, down, down. Stop. Call on the name of God. Ask Him to bring you back up. Ask Him to save you. If you're getting saved for the first time today and you're, you're accepting Jesus, let me know. Let somebody know. Give me a note. Tap me on the shoulder. Come down here and pray with me on the front pew. Whatever it takes, let somebody know you're making that decision. But for the rest of us, let us lift up our voice in thanksgiving. Let us sing to this, God. And let us, if we are overconfident, be humbled. And if we are overly humble, let us be empowered with confidence because of His grace. Let's live for Him.